The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Let's get into your headlines. You're watching Sportbox. 130 nations representing more than 90% of global GDP sign up to a minimum corporate tax rate in a bid to end the so-called race to the bottom. C'est un accord ambitieux. It's an ambitious global and innovative agreement. It's the most important international tax agreement concluded in a century. The IMF lifts its US growth outlook for the year to 7%. That would be the fastest pace of growth since 1984, but warns it could be an uneven recovery. As long as the US economy is booming, but held by slow vaccinations other countries are not, we may still witness some of these supply disruptions. Markets await the latest read on U.S. jobs, with the non-farm payrolls report forecast to rise by around 700,000, while weekly jobless claims hit another pandemic-era low. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo tells CNBC the labor market is permanently altered. A lot of the jobs that folks lost um, are the kinds of jobs, let's say, for example, in retail or services industries, that are, might not be coming back. Robin Hood eyes a more than $40 billion valuation as the retail trading app finally files for its US IPO. At the same time, warning of risks around cryptocurrencies and mean stock volatility. OPEC and its allies fail to find common ground, postponing an output policy meeting to today after the UAE reportedly uh, balks at plans to add millions of barrels back into production. So very warm welcome this Friday morning. Is this an historic moment or is this just the beginning of a more complicated process where we see countries trying to get sectors excluded? And of course, we've got a number of countries that are not even signing up to this deal. Well, let me just read through the details as we have them so far. 130 countries now have put their signature to a sweeping new global taxation agreement. The plan is to impose a 15% minimum tax rate on the world's largest multinationals. The deal is set to place additional levies on companies in the jurisdiction in which they do business, eliminating some of the benefits granted from booking profits in low-tax countries. Big tech is set to be particularly affected by the new rules, but some industries have already been granted exemptions, including financial services, oil and gas, mining and shipping. And as you can see from our big wall here, 
A number of these industries have lobbied very aggressively to be excluded from this 15% tax rate. What does that mean? We'll have to talk to the experts across the program this morning and find out how important those exemptions are and what the additional burden will be now on tech companies because, of course, that has a bearing on earnings and ultimately what the discounted cash flow valuation of those businesses is at current prices. Well, everybody was cock-a-hoop about it, involved in the signing of the deal. The French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, hailed the deal as the most important international tax agreement in a century, saying it will help countries fund crucial public services. We're going to put an end to tax optimization and a race to the tax bottom, which is a dead end for Europe, as it is for the rest of the world. We need to fund public services. We have to fund primary schools, secondary schools, universities, medical services, and for that, the tax bottom and the race to the tax bottom is necessarily an impasse. We're going to set up a minimum effective corporate tax rate of at least 15% that will help us respond to these challenges. There were a couple of key power breakers here from France, but also to the United States and the UK. And finance ministers from several of the world's biggest economies welcomed the global tax agreement. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said it effectively ends America's participation in a self-defeating international tax competition. Germany's Olaf Scholz and the UK's Rishi Sunak also held the deal as a step towards a fairer tax regime. However, Irish Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue, who refused to sign up to the deal, said he was not prepared to agree on a 15% minimum, but that Ireland still remains committed to finding a global tax solution it can support. And that's the point uh, at this stage. We ask the question, where to from here? Bruno Le Maire was uh, one that set it up fairly early on as he welcomed the agreement. Don't forget the French have been pushing for that digital tax, which was about an element of fairness. Now we have this 15% minimum that does effectively the same trick if we can get it to work properly across the globe. Uh, what you've got now, G20, this is uh, a countdown to about the 10th of July in Venice, when a number of politicians are expected to also endorse this OECD tax agreement. But there there are still other hurdles, namely U.S. Congress. We need to still see that cleared as well. But in terms of what it does, it does alter the playing field because companies pay that 15% tax in countries where the income is earned rather than setting up subsidiaries, allowing them to benefit from the lowest tax regime that they can find. In some cases, that is 0%. In other cases, it's 10%. So it does tell you about how much tax has been lost over the years. For me, what was fascinating was that Ireland did not roll over and fall into line with European partners or indeed other global economies. Two billion euros a year at stake. Uh, that was how much tax revenue the Irish have tallied up as potential losses under this taxation change, which is why you can see that they've been holding back. The other one that interests me too was Estonia. And the reality here is that they have a fairly unusual situation where they allow big uh, companies to reinvest in the uh, business and then they just tax the dividends. So a very different tax system to what you have elsewhere. And they believe that it will hurt growth and innovation. So that is, again, where you are seeing uh, some standouts. But, Jeff, I would say over the next few weeks, you can imagine the amount of pressure that these holdouts are going to face. Uh, some already signed up. Some of the tax havens actually signed up for this agreement because they faced so much international pressure. So you can imagine what the remaining handful of countries will face in coming days.
Yeah, I think the problem is complexity, Karen, around this story. The headlines read incredibly well. Finally, we are starting to address seriously massive tax avoidance that globally costs the planet and government something like $430 billion. $430 billion is the calculation every year that's lost through complex strategies and domiciles that effectively uh, deprive governments and ultimately public services then of that revenue. My concern, Karen, as always, as a cynical journalist who's been around the block a few years, how ultimately is this going to be paid? Will it come at the cost of taxes on the consumer through higher prices on goods. And we know that companies are very adept at finding ways of passing through additional taxes. Why should this be any different? My second issue here is a lot of focus on this whole idea of this shouldn't be a race to the bottom, celebrating the idea that governments will ultimately get higher receipts into their coffers. What I'm not hearing here is countries that have been under pressure for decades to reform their public spending budgets, to talk about restructuring, to talk about taking the necessary reforms needed to make their own public services more efficient. Where is the fiscal discipline? Where is the tax arbitrage pressure that persuades governments that they need to take a more streamlined approach to the way they tax their own communities? What about the more efficient use of public funds? I'm not hearing any of that around this story. And that does concern me a little bit because if we just focus on our own part of the world, Karen, here in Europe, all of the uh, uh, key countries now, I think probably barring even Germany, although I haven't looked at the stats recently, are in breach of the Maastricht criteria that established obviously the economic foundations for the setting up of the EU and ultimately the Eurozone. We know that we've had a pandemic and there are good reasons for some of these breaches. But quite frankly, over the last decade, we've seen countries breach these conditions willy-nilly and get away with it. So what are we saying here? That while the focus is on spending and on taxation, We don't need to worry about reform. We don't need to worry about financial discipline. We can allow our politicians to continue to run post-COVID the same kind of generous public spending programs that we've already seen enacted that will ultimately result in higher taxes and a drag on economic activity for everybody else. Oh, Jeff, I I hear you on your criticism and your concerns, but let's see what the windfall is first, because ultimately we've got a lot of countries here that have not had the tax take that they think they should have been able to have, which has meant they've not been able to plan for the future and grow economies. Uh, We've uh, spoken for many years about how challenged some of these European countries are, very low growth models, very hard to extract the sort of revenue to invest in public services, and uh, all sorts of challenges now with the pandemic and reinvesting even further money in the public health system. So the challenge 
challenges have become even greater, but it seems that now the tax system will give them a further income where they can do something with that money. But I do agree with you, that conversation about fiscal discipline, how the money is spent needs to be had. And as uh, humble taxpayers across economies, we've not had a lot of say. I think we get a document that gives us a bit of a split as to how the money is spent. A lot of it we probably don't agree with, but at a corporation level, perhaps there is more weight that those corporations can have about how the tax is then spent if they're paying more of it at this stage. But there's been an enormous amount of tax avoidance going on there. And isn't it right at this point when we see these huge buybacks and dividends that these corporations pay their fair share of tax when workers certainly are do, doing so and have no ability to avoid tax are using accountants and a complex web of uh, different subsidiaries to try and do so. I think it's right that we've gotten to this point. But let's just see what comes up next from here. And as you say, the carve-outs around you know, the likes of financial services, that is one area where you won't see uh, that tackled because they already have holding companies in individual countries where they're required to have capital. But just from the other side, from the, the technology point, and this is what was really the motivator for these talks, tech companies needed to start paying adequate amounts of taxation going through countries, I mean, from the French perspective, disrupting whole industries, uh, the likes of Amazon, Google, uh, for instance, coming into that country, not paying adequate tax. And then you had industries that were going bust as a result because of that uh, competition where no tax or, or very low level of tax was paid. So we're talking about fairness. And I think at this point, given the disparity we're seeing in income levels, fairness has to be part of the tax code. Uh, but uh, let's push on and talk about uh, what's playing out elsewhere with the IMF, which now expects economic growth in the United States to hit 7% this year, raising its outlook from 6.4% in the month of April. Now, this would be the fastest rate of growth for America since 1984. A caveat, though, the fund's forecast assumes that President Biden's spending plans are enacted. Speaking to CNBC's Sarah Eisen, the IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva said an uneven recovery could pose problems if the United States raises interest rates. If we have these divergent recoveries, uh, Sarah, that we are observing now with advanced economies vaccinating and pulling out of the uh, pandemic and many emerging markets, developing countries falling behind, we might be in a situation in which interest rates in US may normalize and that could turn into a headache for countries with high level, especially of dollar denominated debt. Always good to hear from Madame Gorgieva. She speaks uh, an awful lot of sense. But was anybody else out there unnerved by the fact that this IMF upgrade to the growth forecasts uh, takes us back to growth rates in America similar to 1984? Now, I know the world is pretty Orwellian at the moment, but surely we don't need to keep talking about 1984. There was nothing peculiar about the performance of the US markets yesterday. In fact, we continue to see early on in this month uh, an attempt to try and get back to winning ways for these equity markets. You'll know as we came through the month of June, the Dow in particular uh, found it quite difficult to select a higher gear. But here we are, positive closes uh, across the board. And of course, uh, any positive noise around higher growth rates encourages investors to get more excited about the cyclical stocks, about the growth stocks, those stocks in the Dow and the S&P that would largely benefit from a higher uptick 
in growth. But did you hear Andrew Bailey's Mansion House speech? We may talk a little bit more about that later on. But here's a central banker, a very prominent central banker, who is talking about post-COVID, us returning to the rather lacklustre growth rates that existed before COVID. Now, I don't think anybody is pricing that into the market right now, but Andrew Bailey suggesting actually secular stagnation, not necessarily, but just a generally lower subpar glide path for growth rates, which ultimately means lower interest rates going forward. And of course, the great risk that we end up turning Japanese or seeing Japanification of the economy. The Western central bankers don't want to acknowledge it, but that, of course, is always the risk. Quick look at then uh, at where we are on the yield curve at the moment. You'll know the story. It's all been about the yields at the short end rising on concerns about whether the Fed is more focused on interest rate rises in 2022. The 10-year note, still below that 150 mark that's been a key plimsoll line for the markets over recent months, of course. And We continue to see the 30-year Treasury bond uh, around this 2% yield level. Uh, I know we've said it here, and I'll say it again. If I could borrow 2% money for 30 years, how excited would I be? Just doesn't happen when it comes to real rates in the real economy. But that's what the 30-year is telling you, well, at least in the UK. Um, Let's have a look at the dollar. Um, the, uh, the, The interesting question, as always, is whether the dollar is strengthening or weakening at this point. A stronger dollar would perhaps chop off at the knees some of those growth-oriented portfolio plays. Uh, Sterling continues to uh, sit below this uh, key 140 mark here and finding it difficult really to get a catalyst to move higher. Did you see the by-election here in the UK? Labour managed to hang on to a key seat for them, but the majority was massively scythed. Um, Not really, I think, having much material impact on what's going on uh, with sterling at this point. Euro dollar 118.44. And as you can see, the dollar just a little bit firmer against the yen. We should have a quick look at the Asian markets because it's all about anticipating the jobs numbers today. And I think that's a little bit of what we've going on here is we've got a little bit of uh, jockeying for position coming into that key non-farm payrolls number and perhaps a a little bit of concern in the uh, Chinese markets here about what any stronger jobs figures might actually do for this whole story around interest rates and the pricing of money. As we've uh, heard from a number of analysts this week, monetary conditions continue to get a little tighter in China at the moment. And of course, there is some concern that at some stage the United States will also uh, head down that path. The Australian market, as we continue to look at the government's actions around COVID, up four-tenths of one percent this hour. Karen. And Jeff, uh, it's always difficult for those Asian traders. They head off uh, and then they keep an eye on the tape late evening, Friday night for the non-farm payrolls report. And then if it's a big one, have to quickly race back to the office to trade. Uh, but let's take a look at the numbers that we've had crossing from the labour market as U.S. initial jobless claims fell by more than expected to 364,000 last week. 
a fresh pandemic era low. However, the U.S. labor market remains short of pre-crisis levels, with 7.6 million jobs lost since February 2020. Looking forward to today's NFP data, the U.S. is expected to have added 700,000 jobs in the month of June, according to Reuters estimates, following weaker than expected growth in non-farm payrolls in the previous month. The unemployment rate is seen falling to 5.7 percent, while average hourly earnings are predicted to increase by 0.4 percent. Ahead of the figures, a U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo told CNBC she was concerned about people not being able to return to their old jobs post-pandemic. The real issue, I think, is that a lot of the jobs that folks lost um, are the kinds of jobs, let's say, for example, in retail or services industries, that are might not be coming back or might not be coming back in the same numbers. And so what that means is we have to lean into apprenticeships and job training and upskilling. Uh, Gina Raimondo there. Coming up on the program, OPEC and its allies adjourning their latest meeting to today. Uh, there are disagreements going on over supply cuts. We'll look into who's disagreeing and why when we come back. And Jeff, it's tax, tax, tax on the podcast today. For more on the OECD's landmark global agreement and to keep up to date with all the biggest business stories, you can uh, switch into the Squawkbox podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. We're back. OPEC and its allies will hold further talks on output policy later today after adjourning Thursday's meeting amid disagreements over easing supply cuts. The UAE is reportedly reluctant to agree to plans to ease cuts immediately. Uh, we're pleased to see Neil Atkinson this morning, independent oil analyst. Neil, welcome back. Good to have you back on the programme. Look, what's the, um, what's the UAE doing here? Why are they... Uh, reluctant to see these uh, uh, moves? Well, the, the, this isn't new, actually, because bubbling under for quite some time now has been the fact that Abu Dhabi, and of course Abu Dhabi is the driving force behind the oil industry in the whole of the UAE, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company has been investing uh, in uh, new capacity. It's been taking a more active role uh, in trading. And you could argue that uh, Abu Dhabi or the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company has started to operate more and more like an IOC rather than an NOC. And, you know, they look to the future. They see demand for oil continuing to grow in the medium term. They've installed more capacity, and they want a greater share of that market uh, as we move through the 2020s. How tight is the market anyway? I mean, my sense is there is plenty of oil around at this stage. It just doesn't seem to be where it's needed. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, overall, obviously, we're looking at, uh, at demand bouncing back in 2021 from the nadir of 2020. And the demand growth that we're seeing so far this year does seem to be pretty strong. 
even though there are the ongoing fears about the resurgence of the uh, of the pandemic in uh, Southeast Asia and in uh, Brazil. Uh, but on the other side of the balance, there is uh, plenty of oil around. Production uh, uh, is, is, has been reasonably strong, although controlled. But crucially, stocks of oil still remain relatively high, although they have been falling. So there's plenty of supply around. Demand continues to grow. So as the OPEC plus ministers sit around the table, so to speak, today, trying to sort out their uh, policies for the next few months, in some respects, they're, they're, they are really sitting in a very sweet spot with the price in the in the low mid-70s, uh, the demand expected to improve. So in some respects, you could argue if you're an outside advisor, leave well alone for now. The market is probably in, a, in about as good a place as it can be for them. And put aside these discussions about quota allocations and uh, baselines uh, and think about those over the next few months and make adjustments uh, when the time is right. Neil, it has been an incredible rally in the price of oil, 50-odd percent from the start of the year, and uh, some forecasts suggesting even 100. That said, as uh, part of the discussion is around the extension of the timeframe for the deal into late 2022, what sort of signal would it send to the market to have more clarity around the timeframe? Well, I mean, you, you've used the word. It would, uh, it would extend the period of clarity that we already have. Uh, when the deal was originally put together in April 2020, when the market was uh, really in the pits, uh, the OPEC plus countries did a tremendous service to everybody to put a floor under the market and give stability. And I think as we're, we're moving towards the later stages of uh, 2021 in terms of uh, oil industry planning, to extend that horizon into 2022, uh, I think would, uh, would extend that clarity and provide the certainty that uh, the market needs. And it would also acknowledge, I think, that although economies are coming back very strongly in the United States and to some extent in Europe, there remains uncertainty because of the pandemic. And to continue to support the market in the way they have been doing for a longer period of time would be a great service to market stability. And I hope they do that. Neil, it feels as though there are competing themes at this stage. I mean, everybody's closely eyeing the spread of the Delta variant and what that's now doing around COVID ways in various countries and impacting the demand story. I mean, very much a short-term picture at this stage. But then uh, on the other hand, we're hearing enormous conversation around energy transition, which must be provoking all sorts of conversations at these oil-producing nations about how to, to bolster revenues and prepare for the future from here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's an existential question for them. I mean, what do they do every day? They get up and they produce and transport and, uh, and supply oil. Uh, however, uh, I think uh, we need to put aside for one moment the, the enormous debate and discussion about the energy transition, which is, of course, very important, and realise that in the here and now, oil demand is going to continue to grow for most of the rest of this decade and arguably beyond. Uh, once you get to the end of the decade, it gets harder to uh, harder to uh, to assess. So somebody is going to have to produce that oil to meet that ongoing demand. And of course, uh, the national companies which uh, formed the OPEC plus agreement are very well placed to do that. We're seeing today uh, a reluctance amongst investors to uh, start U.S. production growing again. So in some respects, for at least a decade, the national companies represented uh, in the discussions we're talking about uh, are very well placed to capture that market share. 
Uh, and, you know, the United Arab Emirates, or specifically Abu Dhabi, which we started with, is one of the more aggressive countries within the OPEC plus agreement in expanding its capacity and being well placed to support that demand for at least the next decade. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.